Fukushima, and children's thyroid cancer rates. It's a hot topic in Japan right now, as five former prime ministers and the current prime minister face off over whether the 2011 triple nuclear meltdown has harmed children exposed to radiation at that time and since, or not. The former prime ministers say it did. The current administration denies it and is trying to bury the accusation. Who to believe? The only comparison of radiation impact on children after a nuclear accident is with that other massive nuclear reactor accident, the one at Chernobyl in 1986. So when a genuine expert on radiation and health damage to children tells you... In the first 15 years after the explosion and the meltdown at Chernobyl, the rate of thyroid cancer in children in Belarus rose 200 times. In the Ukraine, it rose 20 times. And for every thyroid cancer case, there are 29 other cases of children who have other thyroid disease. Well, when Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project points out the historic understanding of nuclear accident radiation release and child thyroid cancer cases, you get a very clear, uncompromising picture of the exact nature of that dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we take a look at the pushback against child thyroid cancer rates in Japan following Fukushima. We talk with Joseph Mangano. He is executive director of Radiation and Public Health Project and an epidemiologist who for more than 30 years has been examining health data in the wake of nuclear accidents and radiation releases around the planet. He lets us know the merits of the child thyroid cancer arguments in Japan with suggestions of what kinds of research need to be done to determine the truth. We will also include an historic clip of a speech by President John F. Kennedy, referenced by Joe, which took place just prior to the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty being enacted in 1963. And of course, we will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than is going to appear at the Oscars this year. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 15, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off here in the U.S., 
where there have been a lot of problems recently at nuclear reactors. On February 5th, the Akane 2 nuclear reactor in South Carolina scrammed, meaning it had an emergency shutdown, and it was labeled an unusual event, which is the first of four categories that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uses to categorize things that really should not be happening at nuclear reactors. According to Edwin Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists, a blown fuse caused the coolant pumps to trip, triggering the shutdown. Overheating caused the coating on a pipe to break down and smoke. According to Akani owner Duke Energy, there was no fire and no radioactive release. Suspect factors that have not yet been addressed include the temperature that caused the smoking from the cladding on the pipes. It would have to be really high, and the question is why? Also, according to Lyman, the NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, found two violations at the Limerick nuclear plant in Pennsylvania, including operating for six months in 2021 with a broken valve that impaired the plant's ability to reach and maintain cold shutdown in certain fire scenarios. And Arnie Gunderson, chief engineer with Fairwinds Energy Education and a former licensed nuclear plant operator, wrote on Twitter, for 16 years, the Waterford nuclear reactor was improperly calibrating its radiation monitors, and nobody noticed. More than half gave inaccurate readings. 600 employees, two resident inspectors, and numerous NRC and Institute of Nuclear Power operator audits, and nobody noticed. In New Mexico, the National Nuclear Security Agency has formed an accident investigation board to look into last month's reported leak that contaminated several workers at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. The Santa Fe, New Mexican reports that a breached plutonium glove box at Los Alamos on January 7 released airborne radioactive material that was more than double the yearly limit for the work area. The leak occurred in a sealed compartment which has attached gloves so workers can handle radioactive material. According to a report by the Defense Nuclear Facility Safety Board, a Los Alamos employee noticed the breach after working with a container of legacy waste in the glove box. Alarms then sounded, prompting the six-person crew to evacuate. No word has yet been released on the employee's health or if anyone has yet been able to return. Bloomberg published an article entitled, The Nuclear Industry Argues Regulators Don't Understand New Small Reactors, parentheses, Correct. Congress has ordered the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to replace a rules framework that dates to the 1950s. The new guidelines aren't expected until at least 2025. That means that to prove the safety of designs, the Commission demands data from similar plants, the problem being that none of the smaller installations have yet been built in the U.S., so there's no performance history. The newer technology typically uses substances such as molten salt and lead or gases like helium to keep the core from overheating. But no company employing these technologies has won a construction license and only one design, a water-cooled model, as all of the current models are water-cooled. This one from New Scale Power has been approved and is intended to be built at Idaho National Laboratories. 
So the NRC is tasked with trying to regulate a technology that has not yet been built, that is not clearly understood, has not been approved, and nuclear insiders are pushing to cast aside any regulations or limitations based on current understanding of reactors because it doesn't fall in line with their thinking and intentions. Good to know. Environmental groups point out that small modular nuclear reactors still produce enough radioactive material to present a contamination risk, and building more plants, even small ones, will add to the piles of toxic waste that no one can figure out what to do with. Jeff Fettis, an attorney with the National Resources Defense Council, states, To the extent that there will be efforts to weaken the regulatory envelope, we will aggressively push back. And Gregory Yatsko, former chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission from 2009 to 2012, says the lack of movement on such plants around the world suggests that we would be wrong to count on them as a way out of the climate crisis. Quote, they're just not ready, he says, and by the time they could be ready, they're not going to be useful. To which we add, but in the meantime, the nuclear industry will be getting boatloads of money from the government to pursue the false promise of small modular nuclear reactors. Over to Japan, where a remote-controlled robot has captured images of what appears to be mounds of nuclear fuel that melted and fell to the bottom of the most damaged reactor at Japan's wrecked Fukushima nuclear facility. Most of the highly radioactive fuel fell to the bottom of the containment vessels, making its removal extremely difficult. Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, said the images captured this week show broken structures, pipes, and mounds of what appears to be melted fuel and other debris submerged in the cooling water. About 900 tons of melted nuclear fuel remain inside the facility's three damaged reactors. Its removal is a daunting task that officials say will take 30 to 40 years, and critics say that's overly optimistic. At one location, the robot measured a radiation level of two sieverts, which is fatal for humans. The annual exposure limit for plant workers is set at 50 millisieverts, or one-twentieth of that amount. We will link to an interesting article from ScienceDaily.com entitled, Can Reactor Fuel Debris Be Safely Removed from Fukushima Daiichi? It raises a lot of the points that must be considered when looking at not only the problems at Fukushima Daiichi, but the problems that could happen at any nuclear reactor in the world. Also at Fukushima Daiichi, on January 16th, an estimated four tons of liquid at minus 30 degrees Celsius, which is minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit, that was used as a refrigerant to build a frozen earth wall to freeze the ground around the buildings at Fukushima Daiichi, leaked. The frozen wall, or slushy, was examined and revealed that the joints between pipes that feed the refrigerant and the underground pipes used to freeze the ground had shifted. Not unsurprising in an earthquake-plagued country. Some of the joints were replaced on the 22nd of January, parts of other pipes will be replaced sometime in the undetermined future, and the cause of the shift is still being investigated. As for the decommissioning plan at TEPCO's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant ruins, 
Two goals have disappeared from the decommissioning plans put forth by TEPCO and the government. They are zero generation of contaminated water and dismantling of the reactor buildings. TEPCO CEO Akira Ono said, we want to proceed according to schedule. And he stressed that point at a press conference on January 27. But TEPCO had removed the goal of zero generation of contaminated water when their plan was revised in 2019. The previously mentioned frozen soil barrier, which was introduced to stop the inflow of groundwater through the radioactive areas of the plant, has not been proven to be effective. And TEPCO continues to emphasize that the tanks they use to store the still radioactive water will be full next spring. And that's why the government has decided to release that water into the ocean. As regards that planned release of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean, a team of International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, quote-unquote, so-called experts, will visit the wreckage of Fukushima Daiichi to review Japan's plans to discharge the radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. This will take place during a visit which begins today, February 15, 2022. The IAEA will evaluate the so-called safety of releasing the treated water, slated to begin in the spring of 2023. It has been opposed by China and South Korea, as well as local fishing communities and environmental groups around the world. As regards the IAEA and its so-called experts, it's good to remember that Article 4 of IAEA's charter is the promotion of commercial nuclear power, which brings their credibility as an objective fact-finding source into question. An op-ed in the major publication Asahi is headlined, Touting nuclear power as green energy is a non-starter for Japan. This is in response to the EU's recent recognition of nuclear power as an energy source that they say can contribute to curbing global warming under certain circumstances. Qualifying for this designation under the EU taxonomy requires, quote, no significant harm to such environmental objectives as the sustainable use and protection of water, the protection and restoration of biodiversity and ecosystems, as well as pollution prevention and control. EU countries are split on this designation, and we will link to this editorial because it really spells it out very clearly and very thoroughly. While we are discussing the potential dump of even more radioactive water from Fukushima into the ocean, comes the notice that Japan's health ministry has ordered the suspension of shipments of black rockfish caught off Fukushima prefecture after radiation exceeding an upper limit was detected in a catch late last month. The development comes on the heels of an announcement by Taiwan that it would relax a ban on food imports from Japan put in place after the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. A little premature. The suspension means the targeted fish will not be shipped regardless of the destination. This according to a ministry official. And just in case you have not yet had your fill of nuclear boneheadedness, here's... Nuclear Hot Seat Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out awake. Last December, Japan opened its first Pokemon-themed park, featuring playground equipment themed on characters from the popular anime and game series. 
And where was this theme park opened? In Namie, in Fukushima Prefecture, only 35 miles from the site of the triple meltdown and in the middle of the evacuation zone. At Lucky Park, named unironically after the Pokemon character Chauncey, children are invited to play on six pieces of playground equipment donated to the town by the Pokemon Company including a six-meter-tall complex playset with the motif of Chansey, who is labeled the Fukushima Support Pokemon. For context, all residents of Namie were evacuated after the nuclear accident. While the evacuation order was lifted in the eastern part of the town in spring 2017, many residents remain evacuated, and only 31 students about 2% of the number for the 2011 disasters, have come back to elementary and junior high schools in town. Despite the paucity of students available to play in that playground, the Namie municipal government spent some 17 million yen, about 150,000 U.S. dollars, to create the park. In a speech during a ceremony ahead of the park's opening, Mayor Kazuhiro Yoshida said, We'd like to dedicate all our strength to promote relocation and settlement by improving various tourism programs such as Lucky Park and expanding the number of visitors so that they think, I want to visit Namie and live there. Uh, I don't think a playground within 35 miles of a nuclear disaster site is going to do that. And in a totally tone-deaf announcement, Pokemon Company corporate officer Taku Kawamoto said, Lucky is a Pokemon character that brings happiness. I want people to play a lot at this park and bring a lot of happiness to the town of Namie. No wonder the Japanese government is trying to deny that radiation exposure is responsible for the elevated, if not exploding, thyroid cancer rates in children from Fukushima Prefecture. And that is why... Mayor Yoshida, Pokemon Corporate, and all the brainiacs behind Pokemon Park in Namie, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound a week. And in France, a speech by President Macron from 2020 reveals his thinking in terms of retaining and expanding nuclear power. He states, Opposing civil and military nuclear power in terms of production and, moreover, in terms of research, makes no sense for a country like ours. Without civil nuclear power, there is no military nuclear power. And without military nuclear power, there is no civil nuclear power. One cannot exist without the other. So how about let's get rid of both? We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... We're coming up on what I like to call Nuclear Anniversary Alley. Six weeks that mark the anniversaries of the three worst nuclear reactor disasters to date. Fukushima on March 11, Three Mile Island on March 28, and Chernobyl on April 26. These dates are dog whistles to the nuclear industry to unleash their well-planned PR hounds of hell, flax, and paid flunkies. The goal? flood the media with their lies about nukes being green, safe, the cure for climate change, blah, blah, blah. The few honest articles or op-eds that manage to get through, those opposed to nukes, might get out, that might get out there, are immediately slammed with paid naysayers and bots meant to drown out all the anti-nuclear voices. 
As a result, the ordinary citizen hears the hypnotic drone of nukes are good, 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 and fall right in line, well-programmed to parrot surgically implanted talking points that drown out common sense opposition to this deadly technology. That's why you need nuclear hot seat. To cut through the financially backed pro-nuclear shills and their talking points so that you learn what's really going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We counter the pro-nuclear tsunami of disinformation with facts, perspective, credentials, authorities, footnotes, and vetted information. But we can't keep doing this without you. And that's why right now is a perfect time to support us. You can do so by going to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and help us with a donation of any size. If you set up a monthly $5 donation, hey, it's the same as buying us a cup of coffee. So do what you can now, and know that however much you are able to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. As we covered on last week's Nuclear Hot Seat, number 555, Japanese politicians are in a tug of war over the rates of child thyroid cancer that have shown up in the wake of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, the triple meltdown of March 11. In Fukushima Prefecture, a health survey has found 266 cases of confirmed or suspected thyroid cancer in people aged 18 years or younger at the time of the nuclear accident. An additional 27 were discovered in a separate But the Japanese government is claiming that a panel of experts commissioned by the prefecture says that no links have been established so far between the thyroid cancer cases and radiation exposure. And they're trying to fob it off on quote-unquote overdiagnosis, meaning they're actually looking for something. Well, to try and sort out the truth of it, we contacted Joseph Mangano. He is executive director of Radiation and Public Health Project and an epidemiologist. That's one who searches for the cause of disease, identifies people who are at risk, determines how to control or stop the spread, or prevent it from happening again. Joe has over 30 years of experience working with nuclear numbers and comes from a history of teasing out health information hidden in the data. We spoke with Joe Mangano on Friday, February 11, 2020. Joseph Mangano, thanks so much for joining us today here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. This is regarding the what I'm calling the thyroid cancer info wars in Japan that are going on right now. Let's drop back to some basics first. What causes thyroid cancer? If you Google thyroid cancer causes, the first page you're going to see the Mayo Clinic. What causes thyroid cancer? And they're going to have three things. Female sex certain uh, genetic conditions, and the third one says radiation. Then you go to the Cleveland Clinic. They do a little better. They have eight different risk factors, and one of them specifically says exposure to radiation from nuclear weapons tests and nuclear power plants. Cleveland Clinic, other risk factors are things like goiter and a family history of thyroid disease and a personal history of thyroid disease. Those aren't really root causes. Radiation is a root cause. 
when you say root cause, what is the distinguishing factor there? Distinguishing factor is that that cause can take an otherwise healthy person and turn them into someone with thyroid disease. So if radiation is a cause of thyroid cancer, why do we study child thyroid cancer? Any environmental pollution, including radiation, is much more harmful at a certain dose to children, infants, and the fetus than it is to an adult. That's clear. Is that because of body size or mass or weight, or are there other factors involved? One is, is the small body size, and two is the fact that the fetus and infant and child are growing very rapidly, which means the cells are dividing much faster than adults. If you injure a cell to a fetus or an infant, it's going to reproduce into other injured cells and make the chance of cancer more likely. Adult cell reproduction is much slower. Has thyroid cancer or other thyroid disease been studied near nuclear facilities that are not in meltdown like Fukushima was, but are still functioning? Oh, yes. There's, there's a long history of studies of excess thyroid cancer from radiation. As you mentioned, there have been some. The first was Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors. The next were the people in the Marshall Islands exposed to atomic bomb test fallout. Near Chernobyl was perhaps the, the best studied, going to refer to a fantastic book in 2009, written by Alexei Yablokov, which is probably the best consensus on harm from Chernobyl, which, you know, along with Fukushima, is the largest meltdown in our history. And for people who cannot see this at the moment, the title of the book is Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. That's right. Um, if I can go just a bit of detail, in the first 15 years after the explosion and the, the meltdown at Chernobyl, the rate of thyroid cancer in children in Belarus rose 200 times. In, in the Ukraine, it rose 20 times. And they, the, the book makes clear too that for every thyroid cancer case, there are 29 other cases of children who have other thyroid disease, not, who don't quite have cancer. Yet. So it was very clear that the child thyroids around Chernobyl were devastated by this meltdown which is an important fact before we start to study Fukushima. In Japan, it seems that the current prime minister and a group of five previous prime ministers are engaged in what I am calling thyroid cancer wars. The five previous prime ministers released a statement to the European Union stating that nuclear should not be included in green energy taxonomy, meaning the funding of energy, Specifically citing, quote, many children are suffering from thyroid cancer. That was the phrase. And this has triggered an epic pushback by the current prime minister and his government. What's your take on what is happening there? 
My take is that what's being found near Fukushima now with child thyroid cancer was very predictable because it's really similar to what happened after Chernobyl in that area. The current total of children who have been diagnosed with thyroid cancer in the 10 years after Fukushima is now up to 293. Using U.S. health statistics for a, a population that size, they, they, they are testing 38,000 children. For every 38,000 children in 10 years in the U.S., we would expect three or four children to develop thyroid cancer. And here we're talking almost 300. So we're already almost 100 times above expected in child thyroid cancer near Fukushima and rising. The numbers continue to rise every year. Now, the pushback from the current prime minister and his health advisors have been that, yes, there are 293 children with a thyroid cancer, but it's only because we are screening them and testing them, which we normally wouldn't do. It's only because of screening. And that absolutely falls on its face. Put it this way, any regular physical exam from a physician to a child or an adult is going to include palpating the neck area, touching the neck area. The thyroid gland is located right around the throat. And if there are growths, cancerous growths, a doctor is going to, to feel them. So that line that it's only because screening absolutely has, carries no scientific weight whatsoever. Like the term that they've been using is that it's been overdiagnosed. In other words, catching cases that would not otherwise be caught, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but certainly these numbers are alarming. And I need to point out here that I believe it was Dr. Alex Rosen of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, who, when he came on this program, pointed out that the study itself, the Fukushima Prefectural Health Study, had been manipulated to minimize the number of children who could be considered for the study. First off, it was only started five years after the triple meltdown. And many families with children who were under 18 at the time of the triple meltdown had already moved away. So they could not be considered. If anyone after having been started in the study moved out of Fukushima Prefecture or even changed doctors or even missed some of their appointments for the study, they could be eliminated from the pool of individuals who were being followed for this. So the numbers keep shrinking and are undoubtedly diminished from what they might have been if all the children under 18 at the time of the triple meltdown were being studied. Once individuals are lost from a study like this, is there any way to pick up their information and be able to consider it? It would be very difficult to, to do that. However, studies should be routinely done tracking not just thyroid cancer among children or not just thyroid cancer, but all cancers and all immune diseases in the local area in Japan. I know of no other study that has come out of Japan specifically looking at the post-Fukushima health consequences, the rates of disease and death. I have yet to see any published in medical journals. And the reason why is because 
I've published some using not data from Japan, but data from the west coast of the United States, which we know was the hardest hit part of the U.S. by Fukushima fallout within four days after the meltdown. Now, of course, the, the doses were much lower than in Japan, but they were higher than normal. We saw levels of iodine-131 in the precipitation in places like Boise, Idaho, 200 times higher than normal. Instead of two picocuries, it was 400 picocuries and other areas around the country. But all in all, the, the West Coast had more. I found, and my colleague Janet Sherman, who was the co-author of this, this great book on Chernobyl, found several things. We looked at the number of newborns on the West Coast who were born with hypothyroidism, an underactive thyroid gland. And we found that in the months after Fukushima, in the five West Coast states, the Pacific states, the rates were 28% higher, the increased 28% from the same period in the previous year. The rest of the country, it went down 4%. We also looked at children who were born with congenital hypothyroidism or were on the borderline. And that number was 54% higher. That included 777 children. Okay, these are just markers of where Fukushima may well have left its footprint. Okay, we have to continue monitoring and, and doing studies on this, but I know of no other published studies. In fact, the party line from leaders in Japan and other leaders was, was that Fukushima caused zero deaths, right? This is one of the two worst meltdowns in history, and maybe one of the two worst environmental catastrophes in history. And 10 years later, 11 years later, they're pronouncing no deaths without doing the studies, which is not the way science should work. And certainly those of us who followed the study know that Masao Yoshida, who was the Fukushima plant manager, who stayed behind with the group called the Fukushima 50 to actually fight the meltdown by pouring water from hoses onto the plant to keep it from exploding or melting down even further. He died three and a half years later of esophageal cancer, which the country and the government very quickly said, oh, that had nothing to do with Fukushima because it takes too long for that kind of cancer to show up. And it hasn't been that long since the accident itself. So there's no connection to it, which was one of the many lies to cover it up. So we know that certainly Yoshida died and there may have been others, but there's been no attempt to follow these people. Fukushima Prefecture itself commissioned a panel of so-called experts and they came out with a statement that no links have been established so far between the thyroid cancer cases and radiation exposure. First of all, do you have any idea who these experts might be, their affiliations and funding sources? And how likely is it that their finding perhaps reflected a bias that was set up before they even became part of this study? Well, I know the child thyroid cancer study is being done by the Fukushima Medical University. It's an institution that is reliant on, on government funds for its operation. And we know that the government is very 
pro-nuclear, very, very strongly committed to reopening as many reactors as possible. There were 54 reactors operating in Japan 11 years ago. And after Fukushima, they closed them all. Many will not ever reopen, but they're trying very hard to reopen. And I think the number is nine. Out of 54, nine have been operated again, which is not very many, but they're trying to get that number as high as possible. And to do so, it would be a conflict for them to admit to a lot of disease and death caused by the meltdown. So it's really not objective science. There really needs to be an independent analysis of health trends and health patterns in the area. What would it take to get something like that going? And how likely is it that it will ever happen? I've been involved with Radiation and Public Health Project was formed just for that reason, because even here in the United States, there wasn't any good way to get analyses of nuclear reactors and their health risks from people at universities, many of whom are reliant on government grants for their research. We set up the group as one independent from industry, independent from government. And since then, we've published 38 articles in medical journals on our findings, including several about thyroid cancer. I think that is truly the only way, as long as governments remain committed to continuing nuclear power programs, they're just not going to be objective about the health risks. It's as simple as that. That goes to some of the sources that are being cited to prove, and I put that word in quotes as well, that Fukushima had no impact on thyroid cancer rates in children. They are the 2012 report that came out from the World Health Organization and the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and also the 2014 report from UNSCARE, the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation. How reliable as a source for this information is the IAEA, UNSCARE, and the World Health Organization, and how reliable in your estimation are the studies that cite them? Those organizations are totally unreliable. And I'll just go back to using Chernobyl, which is the other large meltdown, as a precedent. From the get-go, the word came out from those organizations that nobody died. Or in Chernobyl's case, they admitted early on to 31 rescue workers who helped put out that terrible fire and got huge amounts of radiation and died quickly. They used that number for a long time. Finally, finally, they pushed the number up to, I think, 9,000 extra cancer cases. However, that is a massive undercount. Again, this book by Yablokov estimated in the first 20 years after Chernobyl, there were 986,000 additional deaths caused by the Chernobyl meltdown. So a million, and obviously it's more than a decade later, that number is increased. So they are into either denying or minimizing rather than being accurate as to what the causes were. I'll even say that we in the U.S. did better. For years, the U.S. tested nuclear weapons above the ground until the test ban signed by President Kennedy went into effect in the 1960s. For a long time after that, the government was absolutely silent on what the fallout from those massive 
blasts above the ground were. And finally, in 1999, after the Cold War had ended, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the National Cancer Institute put out a publication where they estimated that up to 212,000 Americans developed thyroid cancer from the atomic tests in Nevada only. That doesn't include the Soviet fallout, which got here, and, and the fallout from the U.S. tests in the South Pacific. My point here is that it sometimes takes a long, long time to really get out of the truth. And I'm not sure that's even an, an accurate estimate. And of course, they only did thyroid cancer. They stopped their studies after that. Obviously, there are other cancers and diseases from which Americans were affected by the fallout. So it may be years before we get a much better, clearer view of what Fukushima did to the world. And I need to point out that Thyroid cancer is one of the first cancers that will show up after exposure to radiation. But following a dose, be it the iodine-131 that you mentioned, which is radioactive and comes from a fresh nuclear release, that there are long-term impacts from this that take years, if not decades, to show up. Yet, while cause and effect are greatly separated from each other. It doesn't mean that they're not connected. It just means that maybe we haven't had the persistence of vision to hook the cause up with the effect, which is cancer later in life. You bring up a good point, Libby. The effects of radiation exposure aren't always seen like immediately. It's not like you're exposed to Fukushima and, and within a few days you develop cancer. These can take a long time years, even decades. Decades later, they're still studying the survivors of the original Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs and finding excess cancers. And this is 70 plus years ago. So it really takes a committed research effort to, to understand what the effects are. And radiation is no different than anything else like cigarette smoking. You, you start smoking as a teenager, you're not necessarily going to become ill soon after. It could be many decades after. But the disease does show up. Oh, yeah, in, in larger numbers, no question about it. What further research, in your estimation, should be done to understand the health impacts of the Fukushima disaster? Not only do I think the population in Japan should be studied, I think the affected populations in other countries, the, the U.S., as I mentioned, the, the people on the West Coast, and neighboring countries like Korea should be investigated. Number two, I think the thyroid cancer is truly just the tip of the iceberg. We should look at childhood cancers. We should look at birth defects. We should look even at underweight births or premature births. We should look at, and again, as the years go on and these young people become older, look at adult cancers and things like that, because again, it's going to take decades to really understand the full, and not just near Fukushima as well. All of Japan was affected. You know, they found hot particles in, in, in Tokyo, 140 miles away. It's really a, um, there are no lead walls blocking radiation once it's left the reactor. And should I say that almost 11 years later, the Fukushima reactors are still releasing radioactivity into the Pacific Ocean. It has not been contained 
which is, makes it different and perhaps worse than Chernobyl. Chernobyl was contained. It was a terrible, terrible thing, but Fukushima is not. So we must reckon on that as well, because the Pacific Ocean is a feeder for fish for many people. And with Japan, there's the Citizens Radiation Data Map, which was a citizen scientist activist study that took place, taking soil samples from around the country. And what they found was that, you're right, all of Japan should be studied because they found evidence of Fukushima radiation at great distance from the northeast of the country. The study was so scientifically sound and the book that resulted so well written that as a group of amateur writers and amateur scientists, they actually won an award from a major Japanese journalism society. The only time it's ever happened for a non-professional journalist. So the information is credible. The danger is real. It's ongoing and we'll never be free of it. Yes, but at very least we can understand the true health risks better because this will help us limit the exposures and limit the role of nuclear power in the future. Just because we've had a Fukushima, we've had a Chernobyl, is is tragic, but we can use it as, as a learning experience. Similar to what we did with the atomic bomb testing above the ground. What happened in those years, the, the fallout was enormous. It went worldwide. The health consequences are, are, are quite severe. We're still studying, but we learned enough to know that we shouldn't test anymore. I mean, when right before the treaty was signed, President Kennedy gave a speech and he specifically used words like the loss even of even one child with leukemia in their blood, with cancer in their bones, with poison in their lungs is, is unacceptable. He made very clear that this was not just about trying to reduce the chance of a nuclear war. This is a health treaty, which is what it was. So I think we can use studies of Fukushima to learn the same lessons so that in the future we will have less nuclear power and thus less disease from exposures. From your mouth to somebody's ears. Joe Mangano, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show and be able to rely on your excellent information. And for now, I want to thank you for being my guest this week. That was Joseph Mangano, an epidemiologist and executive director of Radiation and Public Health Project. We will have a link up to his website, radiation.org, on our website, Nuclear Hot Seat number 556. I was impressed that Joe could quote President John F. Kennedy from a July 26, 1963 speech on the need for the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty with Russia. In this excerpt, he addresses the need to protect children, and I found it particularly poignant as Jackie Kennedy had a history of giving birth to a stillborn infant, and only a few weeks after this speech gave birth to an infant who died within 48 hours. That is the subtext when JFK This treaty can be a step towards freezing the world from the fears and dangers of radioactive fallout. Our own atmospheric tests last year were conducted under conditions which restricted such fallout to an absolute minimum. But over the years, the number and the yield of weapons tested 
have rapidly increased, and so the radioactive hazards from such testing. Continued unrestricted testing by the nuclear powers, joined in time by other nations, which may be less adept in limiting pollution, will increasingly contaminate the air that all of us must breathe. Even then, the number of children and grandchildren with cancer in their bones, with leukemia in their blood, or with poison in their lungs might seem statistically small to some in comparison with natural health hazards. But this is not a natural health hazard, and it is not a statistical issue. The loss of even one human life or the malformation of even one baby who may be born long after all of us have gone should be of concern to us all. Our children and grandchildren are not merely statistics towards which we can be indifferent, nor does this affect the nuclear powers alone. These tests befall the air of all men and all nations, the committed and the uncommitted alike, without their knowledge and without their consent. That is why the continuation of atmospheric testing causes so many countries to regard all nuclear powers as equally evil. And we can hope that its prevention will enable those countries to see the world more clearly while enabling all the world to breathe more easily. That was an excerpt from a speech on the need for the nuclear test ban treaty from a speech by President John F. Kennedy. We'll link to the complete speech, both audio and transcript, on our website. It's well worth the Activists, activists, the Grand Canyon Trust has issued a call to action asking that we write letters to urge our senators to support and co-sponsor the Grand Canyon Protection Act. This is because uranium mining has left a toxic legacy of radioactive contamination near the Grand Canyon, polluting water, air, and the surrounding environment. Specifically, uranium mining threatens regional groundwater, which feeds seeps and springs inside the Grand Canyon and provides the sole source of water to the Havasupai tribe. The Grand Canyon region holds only 0.2% of the identified uranium resources in the United States, meaning this is the wrong place to mine uranium. And uranium is not an economic driver in the region but tourism and outdoor recreation are. Thousands of jobs depend on a healthy Grand Canyon. So again, Grand Canyon Trust is urging us to contact our senators and ask them to support and co-sponsor Senate Bill 387, the Grand Canyon Protection Act. We'll have a link up where you can learn more about it on our website. And it is with sadness that we mark the passing of Kenichi Hasegawa, a former dairy farmer who continued to tell the truth about the nuclear accident in Fukushima. A resident of Itate Village, he died of thyroid cancer on October 22, 2021, at the age of 68. Mr. Hasegawa was the co-chairman of Hidanren, a group of victims of the nuclear power plant accident, 
and the head of a group of Itate villagers who filed for an alternative dispute. In 2012, he gave a speech at the European Parliament about his experiences in the wake of the Fukushima accident and the film My Legacy, If Only There Were No Nuclear Power Plants, features him. He was diagnosed with cancer in early 2021. After his diagnosis, he said, I wish we didn't have nuclear power plants, and I hope the remaining dairy farmers will do their best not to be defeated by nuclear power plants. His presence will be sorely missed both inside and outside of Japan. And for those of you who are seeking to make a real difference with a minimum of effort, this is so easy and so quick to do, you'll have a great time with it. Don't Bank on the Bomb is a system for divesting funds from those companies that are actively involved in the design and manufacture of nuclear weapons. This brief explanation of how the campaign works is ably voiced by Susie Snyder. She coordinates the research, publication, and campaigning activities for the group and is on the steering committee of ICANN. This brief explanation was recorded at Dr. Helen Caldicott's Symposium on Possible Nuclear Extinction on February 28, 2015. It's amazing. It's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And that's the website, too, don'tbankonthebomb.com. Step one, find out if your bank invests in nuclear weapon producers. Step two, contact your bank. Tell them you don't want them to. Step three, tell the world what the bank says. And if they don't get rid of investments... Go public, because no bank wants to look like a bad guy. It takes one or two people only to make a huge difference. And that can cut off the money stream to the companies that make nuclear weapons. You and I, we have more power than we think. And that power is sitting in our wallet. And how can people find out whether the companies that we're told the bank is supporting have any connection with the nuclear weapons industry? Well, we do a a significant investigation every year. Now, it's not completely exhaustive, but we profile 28 companies that have association with nuclear weapons modernization and maintenance. And it's on our website, uh, don'tbankonthebomb.com. And we really want people to use our information and contact us all the time. You can do that in, you know, through the website really easily. Contact me on Twitter, whatever works. And I'm happy to find out more. And if you find out, learn about more companies involved in nuclear weapons, tell us. We'll do the research and we'll make it public for everybody to use. Love it. I loved it when I first heard about it. And I love it still. Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb. We have a longer interview with Susie about the program and its implications and the progress it has been making. It's up on Nuclear Hot Seat number 454 from March 3rd, 2020. Check it out on our website. That was Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb with an easy, fast, and effective action you can take to rid the world of nuclear weapons. We will have a link up to Don't Bank on the Bomb on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 556. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 15, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from Nuclear-News.net, DeUnRenard.WordPress.com, BeyondNuclear.org, NEARS.org, The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, GrandCanyonTrust.org, Robert Jacobs, weather.com, ourplanet-tv.org, 
bigissue-online.org, wvff4.com, kob.com, bloomberg.com, tokyo-np.co.jp, minpo.jp, yahoo.com, sciencedaily.com, nhk.or.jp, asahi.com, reuters.com, mainichi.jp, marianwildart.wordpress.com, Keep Cumbrian Coal in the Hole.wordpress.com, Edwin Lyman and the Union of Concerned Scientists, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds Energy Education, and the ever captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Now, Nuclear Hot Seat gives you this kind of information every week, so if you want to make certain you don't miss any episodes, it's easy. Go to nuclearhotseat.com. Look for the yellow opt-in box and then put in your first name, put in an email address, and you will get an email with each week's link and a short summary of some of the material that's in it. And you'll get it as soon as it posts. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, we depend on the people who are on the ground and seeing it right in front of you. Don't assume I've got the information. So send it please to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate these weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, and look for that big red button. Click on it, follow the prompts, and know that anything you can do will help, and we really appreciate and need your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that as former Soviet Prime Minister Nikita Khrushchev famously said of the aftermath of a nuclear war, the living will envy the dead. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.